from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer, producer, director, and live cabaret performer. He's joining me today to talk about his debut novel, Firebug, and its timeless social commentary. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of David Blair. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 21st day of September 2023. I came across your book through your amazing publisher, Wicked House Publishing, and based on my experience with your talented contemporaries, I knew I'd be in for a treat. So I checked it out, and I found a great creature feature with an ethereal monster that has emotional depth. So I'm excited to have you on the show and to delve into the gritty details of this dark story. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so very much. Yeah, Wicked House, they're killing it. They're killing it right now. Mm -hmm. I feel lucky to be in that company for sure. Yes. Amazing ability to recognize talent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're killing it. Well, so the book is about a young man named Daniel who gets into trouble when he's younger for setting fires and then develops a problem with alcohol when he goes off to college. He's forced to come home when his parents find out that he's been flunking his classes because he's always drunk. And when he arrives home, he's confronted with a strange creature that's terrorizing his neighborhood. So... It didn't seem like any of Daniel's addictive, destructive tendencies came from his parents, and it appeared that his parents raised him well. So where did this behavior come from? I think that Daniel, I think that he has just a fascination with destruction, in a sense. I think also that, slight spoiler, I guess, but his parents do get separated there's a period of time in the book where his parents do separate for about a year. And it's not like explicitly stated in the book, but there's a lot of subtext with them, the parents fighting and not getting along about this thing or that thing. And I do think that there is an element of Daniel's behavior that is prompted by a little bit of the unrest between his parents. Okay, I think it exacerbates a quality in him that was already there. And how old was he again? I can't remember when his parents were. When his parents separated, I think he was 
14 or 15. Okay. So in the throes of puberty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely a uh, a breeding ground for neurosis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because one of my questions was, you mentioned like kind of an obsession with destruction. It seemed like from the way you wrote a few of the scenes that he just got this really charged thrill. And I don't know that it was sexual, but I know that such a thing as pyromania exists Mm -hmm. where uh, people actually derive a sexual thrill. I'm not sure if it's the vision of the fire itself, the properties of fire almost being a living entity that consumes things to survive or what the deal is. Does he have any of that in him or is it basically just what we just spoke about? I think that there's not necessarily like a sexual element, though. I mean, one could read into that, especially because he's, you know, in the throes of puberty, as you said, like, you know, but I think that there's an element of control with fire. There's a little like internal monologue in one of the chapters where he talks about the creative and destructive qualities that fire has. And that is, for me, what I was intrigued with with Daniel is a boy who feels like there are certain things out of his control, like his parents' relationship and like the rocky nature of that. I think that being able to burn things to the ground and him having control over it is one of the bewitching things about it until, of course, this big scene that happens where he sets a fire and it gets out of his control. So yeah, I think that there's an essence of, you know, he says in the text, creator and destroyer, me, a god. Like, there's this quality of control. Kind of a, uh, almost a Promethean (laughs) impulse. (laughs) Exactly. uh, I've been given the gift of fire by the gods, and I am going to exert my will upon the universe. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, yeah. And you know, he's kind of a, prickly character to begin with. And I find protagonists that are flawed to be far more interesting than just your run-of-the-mill protagonist. I like to dive into their fucked up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, the pathos of my protagonist. I think it's way more interesting. Yeah, black and white is boring. boring. Like, just this one kid, oh, he's enduring the throes of puberty, but uh, he learns from his mistakes, then he becomes a good guy, and then everything's fine. You know, it's just like, okay, well, I could watch about 90 other movies with that same plot line. I want the person to have to deal with being selfish and Mm -hmm. have to deal with maybe succumbing to selfishness or, uh, you know, doing something simultaneously horrible yet benevolent (laughs) to Mm -hmm. where you're like, I like him, but God damn that motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, like it comes through, I hope. And I think that Daniel has a good heart. I mean, at the core of who he is, he's a good kid, Mm -hmm. but of course he's got issues and that makes him human. Yeah. You know, he's not two-dimensional. It was my hope to create a very familiar three-dimensional protagonist. 
I like his almost Sisyphean, like absurdist kind of view of just, yeah, this is just fucked up shit. This is how it happens. I, I guess I have to deal with it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. For a 19 year old kid, he's pretty cynical. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I noticed, you know, I'm going to try not to give away any spoilers, but hearkening back to what you said about the divorce, when he got in trouble, you know, there's one big time that he gets in trouble. And then there's some incidents with his friends where he's trying to use fire to impress them. He's thrilled by it. He wants them to be thrilled by it. And he's kind of disappointed when they're not. So was it almost an additional caveat? Was it he was trying to not only get attention from his friends, just like, you know, any teenager would want to impress his friends, but also to get the attention of his parents who were obviously not paying attention to him because they're, you know, embroiled in their own issues? Yeah. I think that he does want to share his fascination with his friends and he wants to have that in common with them. And of course, you know, they're like, dude, every time you do something like this, you get in trouble Mm -hmm. and it doesn't impress us. You end up getting grounded. We can't hang out, which, you know, again, without spoiling it, that's why when this entity blows into town with the interests that the entity also has with fire, Mm-hmm. that's where he finds potentially a kindred spirit yeah. for the first time in this like, you know, bizarre way. Mm-hmm. Well, so he had issues with alcohol, which is a common addiction. He had issues with fire as funny as that sounds, but that's a common compulsion that people just like succumb to that, you know, obviously will get you in deep shit, especially if somebody gets injured or killed. Yeah, But then there was his use of hallucinogenics, which almost kind of seemed like almost like a red herring meant to throw you off somehow, you know, them not being inherently addictive. What did his use of hallucinogenics do for the narrative? For me, it is the fact that it is told first person. The narrative is a first person narrative. Mm -hmm. And I could very easily make it so because of maybe his experimentation with hallucinogens and he's, you know, on acid a lot, like that first semester of college really, (laughs) really (laughs) fucked him up. It is kind of a red herring. You're right. Like if he's seeing this monster, maybe his brain short circuited from all of the hallucinogens, you know, that would be the twist. But I don't like stories anymore where nobody believes the protagonist that the monster or the ghost or whatever exists like and it takes so long for people to be convinced that it exists Mm -hmm. so i wanted right away for other people to see the monster Mm -hmm. and that kind of takes away from it being just a hallucination so yeah you're correct the hallucinogens is kind of a little red herring or like a okay (laughs) well i hope i didn't give i guess i gave I guess I gave a spoiler there. Sorry, folks. <laughs> no, no, no worries. No worries. It, it's such a minor part. And also, I just wanted to like stack his infractions, whatever the word is. I wanted to stack it as much as I could, not just drinking alcohol, but also drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a theme throughout the whole novel of transfer addiction, which is a real thing. It's hard to talk about the book without spoiling the end. Yeah. But yeah, one addiction, you know, seemingly under control, but 
it just gives birth to a different addiction. Whack-a-mole. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> One goes down, goddamn, the other one pops that's up. It, that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Daniel finds later on in the book that his childhood friend Truffles, love the name, uh, <laughs> had you. undergone a significant transformation. I guess maybe not really significant, but just enough to where he's dressing better. Sounds like he's a little bit more socially adept. I think he lost a little weight. Mm -hmm. So how did this change in Truffle's character serve the overall narrative and what influenced his evolution? You know, I was just talking with my partner at lunch today about that question, about Truffle's and the, the significance that it has in the narrative. And honestly, it doesn't really have that much of a significance for me as the writer. It was just like, you know, people change. People go to college, people change. Mm -hmm. Like, that's basically it. It just seemed like a real thing for me and a more dynamic thing for me than having mm -hmm. truffles just remain old, derp -a derp derp -a derp truffles, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I wanted him to go through some sort of evolution, but it doesn't do anything specifically to serve the story. It's just how I saw that character evolving. Gotcha. Yeah, I wish I could remember the name of the actor. There is this one guy that I could just, if this was ever put to screen, mm -hmm. uh, this guy would play Truffles, and I cannot for the life of me remember his name. I'll have to look it up and let you know. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> well, obviously not for real in the story, but just maybe in the back of your head as you were writing it, did the monster in any way kind of symbolize the internal demon that fuels Daniel's obsession with fire? Um, yes. I think that by the end of the story, the creature sort of symbolizes self-forgiveness and empathy. and seeing something that he recognizes in himself, but it's in this other. Mm -hmm. He sees this quality in this creature, but it's a creature. You know, like it's a thing to be afraid of. Everyone's afraid. And, you know, it does pose a threat because of what it eats. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Uh, not a very I, sustainable source. <laughs> no, 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 no. And uh, I think that... The monster represents that. If you're going to throw a metaphor or some symbolism onto the creature, which, you know, I think by the end, hopefully, if I've done my job, people will make that connection. Yeah. Yeah, because if you didn't have the confirmation from everybody else that immediately saw the character, you would think, oh, my God, he's seeing like this spiritual manifestation of his yeah. character defects and the demon inside that drives him and so on. Yeah, yeah. Nope. I want a literal monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, another thing about the monster, considering the creature's kind of incorporeal nature, mm -hmm. especially when it's not in contact with something, it kind of gives off the essence of a flame. Mm -hmm. So how intentional was this thematic representation of fire throughout the story? Or is that an interpretation that might be overanalyzed? <laughs> um, you know what? I'm just going to say yes. 
<laughs> yes, overanalyzed? <laughs> yes to all of it. I yes think. to all of it. Okay. Yeah. When I was like dreaming up this story, the first major set piece that I thought of, and then of course I built the narrative around it, but the first set piece was the scene where the Christmas tree is on fire and it's our first real, and Daniel's first real direct view of this creature and how it reacts to the fire. And I just pictured this waltz and I knew I was like, okay, it doesn't belong on our plane of existence. And so Mm. the physics of it all, like it's constantly on the verge of evaporating unless it comes into contact with other solid matter. But just the idea of this waltz between this flame, which is not solid, and then this creature that is sort of solid, but not solid, and it can kind of like wrap around the flame. That's kind of what solidified for me how the creature was going to move, how it was going to exist within the world. And then, yeah, it does kind of resemble fire. There's a another kindred relationship between this creature and fire. And I never specifically say in the book whether it's because the creature is familiar with fire in this world or if this is something completely new that the creature has never seen before and is also fascinated. So like, I try to leave enough questions and enough ambivalence for the readers to form their own opinion. And I know everybody sees it and everybody sees it well enough to be scared shitless by it, mm-hmm. but I can't remember if they describe it the same way. Is there like a common description of it? Or is there a um, possibility that they're all seeing it differently? Um, the most common description I think that I use throughout, because like, you know, it stays first person and then I switch when someone else is like recounting the story yeah. of seeing it. What they think they're seeing are ears mm-hmm. coming up. They're not ears. So they think that they're seeing maybe an animal or some sort of bipedal animal thing with like lynx ears, but that's the creature slowly like evaporating. Um, yeah, and it's always so the eyes. The, yeah, and the eyes. That is probably the one or two common descriptors that people say. Yeah. Well, as we've been alluding to and delicately sidestepping, <laughs> the creature <laughs> craves something very particular. Uh, so did you explore other choices and if so, what were they? And I don't know if, if you can't answer this without giving a spoiler, just pass. But what guided your decision for the final inclusion in the novel? Um, let's see. Let's see. How do I answer? I wanted something scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, it's a horror <laughs> novel. Yeah. I wanted something disturbing. And I needed a specific thing that it eats. I wanted to be as specific as possible. So then when later events happen in the book, it's really hard to talk about and not spoil. Listeners at home, you're going to have to read the book. (laughs) Yeah. When later events happen, it can create that horrifying tension and the monster is a threat to Daniel's family. Yeah. Were there any other things you had initially? That it would, uh, no, no, right uh, off the bat. That's the one. (laughs) This is what it's going to eat. Nice. This is what it wants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, first of all, let me congratulate you on a very 
interesting, very unexpected, very unique, very abstract ending. Thank you. Was your portrayal of the monster towards the end a commentary? I feel like I don't even need to ask this, but a commentary on larger societal or cultural issue. Yes. Yeah, it definitely was. I think that, again, going back to the empathy of it all, I think that by the end, we see this creature. It's doing what it needs to do to survive. It's an animal, you know? It doesn't have malicious intents. It's not evil. It's simply something that does not belong here that we are, like, demonizing and... Oh my gosh, I mean, how do I how do I put this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, definitely the subtext of empathy. Yeah, and just because something is an other, we might have something in common with it, you know? Uh-huh. And that is where Daniel, his tendency to light fires comes in handy. Uh-huh. Is he's the only one who really understands this creature. Uh-huh. And then by the end, I don't want to give that away either because it's a pretty special ending for me. Yeah, definitely don't do that. (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't think the two scenarios or situations can be compared apples to apples. But in a sense, I started thinking about like, you know, imagine the most sadistic, brutal serial killer. Well, at one time that you know, let's just say it's a man. That man was a little boy, you know, mm-hmm. innocent, sure. probably, you know, I mean, I'm sure at some point followed that trajectory of killing animals and so on, but yeah. either by systematic abuse or by some sort of genetic organic brain thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like the kid was born and decided, I want to be a serial killer when I grow up, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, like, you can place this person in the ninth circle of hell and say they're a horrible person. But at one point, especially the ones that are systematically made serial killers from abuse, you know, mm-hmm. how lucky are you that you weren't born into that, you know, yeah. just like a generational curse. And so who do you get pissed off at? Do you get pissed off at the dad? Well, he probably went through systematic abuse himself. And as it got passed down generation to generation, it was more concentrated till the next thing you know, you've got a serial killer that's strangling and torturing women or something like that. Sure. So sure. yeah, that's what the ending made me kind of think about, even though they're not completely comparable pretty sure, close sure. it's it's not a one-to-one for sure but i see what you're getting at yeah i think that it also and i didn't even really put this together until i'd finished it and read the draft that i was going to send to wicked house but in a lot of ways there's some like and i'm a gay man but there are some queer allegorical elements to the ending of this story as well and just like the basic themes compassion for the other you know compassion for something that we would commonly think of as a monster and moving forward with grace when confronted with this other. Uh So yeah, there's definitely some like queer allegorical elements to the end as well. Okay. Well, how might the story have been different if told entirely from the monster's point of view? Hmm. That's a great question, Vincent. I 
<laughs> I, let's get cracking right in this right now. Let's, yeah. Let's <laughs> um, I think that it would have been a survival story. Mm-hmm. I think that it would have been a fish out of water story. It's not explicitly stated in any of the text, but we don't know how the creature really got here. We don't know where the creature is from. But in a way, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> if mm. Stephen King had written E.T., like, it, he, this thing is far from home. It doesn't belong here. It got left here. Mm-hmm. And it's just trying to survive the only way that it knows how. And then it also just so happens to have this fascination with this element, mm-hmm. which is also never really explained. And I did that on purpose. I don't want to explain everything. I think that readers like to be able to put together their own puzzle sometimes yeah well as you mentioned we don't know where it came from i was going to ask i know sometimes authors do this they leave little easter eggs Mm -hmm. are there any easter eggs as to maybe the origin of the monster that if you search deep now (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna overanalyze something and figure something out (laughs) yeah yeah you know the human brain it wants to see patterns no matter what it Uh, that's how we've survived by finding patterns yeah nope it is one of those instances where i very purposefully did not want to give a lot of background on the creature where it came from how it got here. Mother nature just sometimes is, mm-hmm. you know, things just happen. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I wanted with the origin of the creature. But, you know, and like, and it's a direct line from the book, you know, mother nature and in her infinite wisdom, maybe somehow brought this creature straight to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a little bit of potential for like a design in here somewhere, but I just kind of liked the chaotic idea of you know we don't know where it came from what it's doing here how it got here it's just here Mm. i think it's like you know how if you get into like theoretical physics quantum physics and stuff like that you can't tell like which is true and which is like the ravings of a madman (laughs) (laughs) yeah sure what do they always talk about dark matter and the boson higgs particle i think the monster was an undiscovered element, kind of like a black hole can destroy things. Like this is an undiscovered, maybe it was like a miniature black hole or something like that. I don't know. Oh, gonna... I like it, Vincent. Yes, let's just <laughs> run with that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's why you had him do acid. See, I'm reading all kinds of shit into this now. <laughs> Great, perfect, perfect. I did my job then. And see, this is what I'm saying. I would much prefer my audience to think about it and have questions and mull and long after they've turned the last page and it being something that people think about Uh and want answers to. And that's the most common thing that I've read in reviews is, I want to know more about the monster. I want to know where it came from. Is there going to be a sequel, you know, (laughs) or a prequel? My very confident answer is no, absolutely not. There's not going to be a prequel, a sequel, or anything. I want it to be ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It's unexplained on purpose. (laughs) The book is a singularity, (laughs) just like the monster, just a singularity. The singularity. (laughs) Well, towards the end, 
you know how they say with addicts, like a true addict, once an addict, always an addict, you may be in remission, so to speak. But if you ever pick up a drink or pick up a drug, you're just going to go right back to where you were. But I feel like I remember, seemed like Daniel was able to just towards the end, go back to moderation. What revelation did he ultimately have that appeared to free him from those tendencies? Um, I think that the creature had a long lasting impact on his life growing up. And I mean, this isn't like a huge spoiler or anything, I don't think. But again, the idea of transfer addiction, which is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. His addiction just goes from one thing to the next. By the end of the book, he's a smoker. He smokes cigarettes. That's right. That's right. And it's such a small little detail. And I threw it in at the very end. Yeah. But there's some symbolism with that cigarette. And he likes to watch the smoke rise. And he likes to watch the end crackle. And there's fire Um, involved. And there's fire involved. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But it's that whole nature of transfer addiction. He never fully beats his addiction. It just transfers to something else. Yeah. But I mean, I think you're right. You know, he doesn't drink anymore. He has found a way to moderate his behavior, but the addiction didn't go anywhere. It just changed form. Yeah. Yeah. You go into an AA meeting, everybody's drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes, which, you know, it's, it's not exactly crystal meth, but nicotine and caffeine are both stimulants. I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. it's drugs. It's, you know, it it is drugs. And Daniel has a problem with that. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, all around great book. Oh my gosh. Thank you. And you guys, do you all use the same cover designer? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Christian Bentulon. That's right. He's so good. He's just mm. great. What a gem. What a find. Yeah. And I don't know the background with him and Patrick's. Patrick is the publisher. I don't know the background yeah. on how they know each other or anything. But yeah, he does spectacular work. And he and I collaborated together on this cover. Mm. I had certain imagery that I wanted. And you know, we went back and forth. Some things were too complicated. Some things were too abstract. My initial idea was a little too abstract. And so we came together with Patrick and came up with this concept, mm-hmm. which I'm really happy about. I like showing the creature on the cover. And, you know, remarkably, Christian never read the book. I don't think. And it was just like from my like little descriptions to him, he really kind of like personified this creature for me and he brought it to the cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like the fixation that they both have fire, a lit match right there in between the eyes. Yeah. 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 The cover really, it tells you what the story is, I guess, Mm -hmm. I guess, which is a, what any good cover should do, I guess. While not giving anything away and, you know, dispelling any kind of mystery, I think that the cover is very effective in communicating what this story is going to be. And this is your debut novel, correct? That is correct. Yes. I've written one other one, but it's not published. Okay. So Wicked House is the first publisher you've dealt with? Uh, Yeah. Okay. So you just got <laughs> right off the back. I mean... Struck gold. <laughs> I was going to self-publish Firebug for many years, for a few years. It was just sitting on my laptop. I was like, what the hell am I doing? I should just do something with this little story. Uh And one of my good friends, she's also an author. She writes YA 
but she, from a very like trusted, reputable source, she passed along Wicked House's information to me. And they were just starting out, brand new publishing house and taking unsolicited material. I've tried, you know, in the past to get like a literary agent and thinking that that was the only way that I was going to get anyone to read a book that I'd written. Like no one's going to take unsolicited material. I work in the film industry as well. And it's difficult when you don't have an agent or a manager to get your scripts in front of the right eyeballs. Mm. And this opportunity popped up, brand new publishing house, taking submissions. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what the hell? Why not? Mm-hmm. And I jumped through the hoops and sent in the first three chapters and, you know, the query letter, all the stuff. And then they asked for the full manuscript. And I wasn't expecting it. Surely, Firebug's true first time out with a publisher, I was like, they're not going to pick it up. That's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, this was a go for broke, my like Hail Mary. And they did. Mm-hmm. They took it. They took it and published it. And yeah, I was feeling very, very fortunate and lucky. Definitely. It's been very good. Well, you were talking about having your manuscript, as you said, just kind of lying around. And what are we in the year 2023? What? Uh, year of our Lord, 2023. <laughs> this foul year of our Lord, 2023. <laughs> oh, God help us. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the current trends in horror literature? Is there anything you think is overdone or underrepresented? Um, Horror literature. Or film. You can throw that in there, too. Just horror in general. Um, I feel like that horror has always been a champion of misfits or a champion of people that are on the fringes of society. Uh-huh. And I'm seeing more and more like representation in horror, queer representation, we're seeing more like ethnic diversity, I feel like, in horror. This is film, by the way. Mm-hmm. As far as horror literature, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe we're seeing the same thing. I think that there's some stronger diversity happening in horror literature. I don't know. It's an interesting question that I'm not sure how to answer. Do you think, you know, I've always read, but I've been more into the mainstream. I've just recently got into indie And so I don't know. I know that Splatterpunk started a long time ago, Mm -hmm. but was it as prevalent as it is now? Is it having a resurgence because with social media and independent publishing, there's more of a platform for it? I would have to say yes. But honestly, Vincent, I am learning so much with this being my first ride out with a novel and being a published author now in the indie world, I've learned so much about the different subgenres within the indie horror genre. So like, I didn't know that the word splatterpunk existed a year ago. Yeah. So clearly I have not, I don't think I've read any splatterpunk. (laughs) I've heard a lot of like extreme horror is also like a genre that I've learned about Mm -hmm. since I've been published. 
yeah, I'm learning a lot, but I don't know. That's a really great thing. And I think that that's a really interesting thing. And because of the emergence of the indie industry that you're able to take bigger swings, Mm -hmm. you're able to take risks with your content. And because there's an appetite, there's an appetite out there for anything and everything. And if you really want to pick up something that's going to turn your stomach, yeah, I like the idea of extreme horror and splatterpunk. And again, I haven't read any of these subgenres. I'm hoping that there's more to these books than just blood and guts and whatever. I hope that there's like a narrative and a protagonist to root for, or like there's <laughs> some kind of something well, that's not just, you know, guts flying all over the place. There are some that can be just a little gratuitous, like, you know, what the hell? But like, I don't know if you've ever read Daniel Volpe. Mm-mm. He, uh, his writing, it's extreme, but it's just, it's gore, it's transgression, it's depravity, but it's all like seated in this gilded narrative that, I mean, just takes you along. I wish I could remember the name of the book that I interviewed him when he had just put it out. It's about this woman that was basically obsessed with her appearance and going through plastic surgery. And the plastic surgeon was, uh, had had his license taken away because he was doing things to the patients while they were under. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely check that one out. That's horrifying. That is real horror right there. of Something Mm -hmm. that is like believable. Yeah. Could happen, probably has happened. Well, speaking of could happened and probably has happened, are there any personal experiences that influence the theme or narrative of Firebug? Um, are you a Firebug? <laughs> Where were you on the night of December? <laughs> That's my secret, Vincent. It's my uh, little not secret. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I'm not a pyro, but I am fascinated with fire. So. My dad and I used to go on fishing trips. And I remember my favorite part of going on a fishing trip as a kid would be when we made the campfire and I got to throw things into it. Like I got to throw things into the fire and watch it burn. Like, sure, I'll cast my line out into the water and my dad will watch the pulls. But, you know, as a little boy, I was far more entertained, you know, by the fire. Like, you know... (laughs) mankind's first television, you know, Mm. back in the caveman days. Like I was more (laughs) invested in watching the way that the marshmallows would burn in the fire than catching the fish. So, Mm. you know, I think that there is obviously a quality of myself in Daniel in the relationship to a fascination with fire. Mm. Um, Yeah, I haven't burned down any houses (laughs) yet. (laughs) I think everybody gets a little fascinated with fire when they're younger. I was, you know, Mm -hmm. I used Mm -hmm. to love the little matchbooks that you used to get from like restaurants. Sure. I used to love setting the entire thing on fire. You know, just there's an innate fascination, I think. And I think you're right. I think that fascination speaks to humankind. I think it's latent in our evolution. You know, it's one of the elements that kept us alive basically exactly how we cooked how we you know lit our path and yeah it's just fascinating there's also there's an episode i don't know if you remember this show called sliders remember that sci-fi show it was on fox 
I don't think I ever watched it, but I remember seeing commercials for it. Yeah, it had Jerry O'Connell in it. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the basic premise is, you know, it's kind of like Quantum Leapish, where these irascible kids, they keep going from one dimension to another. And in every dimension, it plays by its own rules. You know, it has its own set of rules. And they go to one world, they slide into one dimension where fire is intelligent. Mm. It's this sentient thing. And I was so fascinated by that idea. And it seemed like such a simple idea. It just seemed so simple, but it was so cool to me. That episode, that Mm. episode of Sliders, (laughs) that episode has stuck with me. And yeah, in the episode, it's like fire is forbidden because once you summon it, Mm. it can think for itself. And there was a fascination with me in writing a firebug where I think that that kind of comes through a little bit. Yeah, fire. It's just, it's, it's. You just think one little size of a grain of rice spark can take an entire house down. Yeah. Take an entire forest down. An entire forest. Yeah. I live in Montana. And for the greater part of, Every August, our state burns. It just yeah. burns. I mean, a lot of places <laughs> are burning. You know, there's a lot of fires everywhere. You know, poor fucking Lahaina. Mm. It has such a power to destroy everything mm. if it gets out of control. But again, like you were saying, in our evolution, the caveman days, it also gave us warmth. Mm. It helped us cook food. And the fact that some trees have evolved where in order to germinate their seeds, they have to be brought to a certain temperature. So they crack open that only fire can do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just one of these weird, fascinating things that I think we take for granted sometimes. Yeah. Well, this being your first novel, I know you have experience in film, but this being your first novel, How did you handle the fear of judgment or criticism when sharing your creative work? Um, Or do you have any fear? You're like, fuck it, I don't care. (laughs) You know? (laughs) (laughs) I don't care what anybody thinks. (laughs) Um, I, I don't know, kind of in a way. And it's not that I am like, I'm super egotistical or arrogant about anything. Mm -hmm. If I like something enough, I don't care, really. Like, sure, everyone gets their feelings hurt. And if somebody says something, you know, this sucked, or here's a great reason why you shouldn't read Firebug. Um, (laughs) It's going to hurt my feelings. But also, I've been in the film industry for many years, and I think that I've developed a thick skin, and I can really handle rejection, and I can handle people saying, yeah, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. I, Could you handle it at first or were you desensitized? <laughs> I've been desensitized. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Um you just develop a thicker skin when you fail so many times. <laughs> uh, 
when I was younger, like 21, 22, I tried stand-up comedy, you know, doing open mics. Mm -hmm. And I actually oh my did. God, good for you. That, <laughs> that takes real bravery. Stand-up comedy. Well, my God. Hats well, off. Don't, don't put me on a pedestal yet. <laughs> I did. <laughs> it was easy to do because at first I got laughs. You know, I got lucky that... I was able to write some material that made people laugh. And if the owner liked you in open mics, he would put you in the black and blue show, which is the free show in the main room that people would go to. It was like a bunch of the open micers doing six minutes a piece. And then one of the locals that normally open for a headliner would headline the show. Okay. So it was cool. It was fun. Cool. But then I got a taste of what it's like to eat it on stage. Like it happens to everybody, mm. the everybody. best comics in the world. Like I think Joe Rogan talks about it on his podcast all the time. He's like, man, you just have to eat it so hard so many times. Like, and it only happened like twice and I was done. My ego could not take it. <laughs> it's the most horrible fucking feeling in the world. Oh my God. I, and it's just you up there. Yeah. Like it's just you performing your material by yourself. Mm -hmm. to a crowd i think that being a stand-up comic takes such balls yeah <laughs> yeah it's easy to have balls if you have a good reception but once it goes south it's like oh yeah. i can't do it. <laughs> yeah exactly i write comedy too i'm actually a part of a performance cabaret troupe here in whitefish montana I think I saw you have something on your Instagram, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have five more shows left uh, for this particular show, but we write, you know, song parodies and sketches and, you know, we make fun of social politics. We make fun of everything, social commentary on all sorts of stuff. And we've really found a an audience here for that. There's an appetite for the kind of comedy that we bring, but we get to be on stage with each other. Like yeah. we're not by our, you know? And so that's the difference between stand-up comedy is like you're by yourself. Yeah. Like the product is you and they don't yeah. like the product. <laughs> so they don't mm -hmm. like you. Ugh, yeah. It's a horrible the, feeling. The blow to the ego. Mm -hmm. Well, again, congrats for trying it because that's, that takes yeah. some bravery. It's a, it's a bucket list thing I can check off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what do uh or did i suppose beta readers or writing groups play a role at all in the writing of this book yeah absolutely my friend jess who hooked me up with wicked house she read an early draft and gave some great critiques my friend jeff giles he writes for variety magazine but he also wrote two supernatural ya novels he read a very, very early draft and he gave some incredible notes that I absolutely took. Mm. I mean, I didn't take all of them. I took what I thought was spot on. So yeah, my beta readers were incredibly important for this to flesh everything out. When you're writing a sci-fi or horror novel and there's supernatural elements and there's things that are otherworldly to make sure that those elements pop, you've got to make everything else, I feel, seem grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my beta readers helped me find those things that this would never happen, or her reaction wouldn't be that way, or mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. 
yeah, for effective supernatural stuff, I feel like the surrounding world needs to be grounded in reality. And they really helped with that. And does Wicked House have its own editor? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think they have a couple. Okay. Yeah, they have a couple editors, I think. I'm not sure. But yeah, their own editors, their own like proofreader, of course, their own cover designer. Mm. It's a full operation. I feel really very fortunate to be in that company with these incredible authors and Patrick, who really wants the authors to succeed. Mm. All that being said, we are responsible for a lot of our own marketing and a lot of our own promotion. Patrick can only take it so far because he's busy hyping the next book Mm -hmm. that's coming out. So we are responsible for a lot. And I will tell you something. Marketing and promoting this book has been harder than writing it, getting it published, editing it. (laughs) (laughs) Getting people's eyeballs on this book has been the hardest part of publishing this book. Mm. Without a doubt. So that's why things like this, your podcast coming on here and like talking about it and hopefully sparking interest in the novel is incredibly important for indie writers. Mm-hmm. Doing these podcasts, trying to get reviews and sticking our necks out as much as we possibly can to get people's eyeballs on our work. We have to hustle in whatever little way we know, which again, is why I'm very grateful for you and for this podcast. So every little thing helps. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of hearkening back to our conversation about splatterpunk and the like, are there certain boundaries or lines you won't cross in your writing? Um, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't. I mean, I don't want to vilify or punch down at any kind of repressed groups. I guess that's my only line, but that's not like blood and guts. That's not splatter punky. Like that's just my own ethical line that I won't cross. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I love children in peril mm-hmm. as a plot device. <laughs> so a lot of writers, once they have kids, find it really hard to read books where kids die or mm-hmm. you know something like that i don't have kids i don't plan on having kids so i have no problem killing kids <laughs> <laughs> you know you want to that hear something terrible <laughs> <laughs> no you want to hear something crazy i had paula d ash on and i asked her basically that same question now that she has kids because of what you just said there's a lot of authors that have told me when they had kids they didn't want to use kids as a plot device or violence against kids and she was like it was the opposite for me it was like once i had kids now there's another thing i'm terrified of to write about (laughs) (laughs) oh my god yeah sure sure it's a source of fear you know Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah i understand that i get that I love my cat, so I don't particularly see myself killing any cats, maybe, in my next novel, but (laughs) 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 certainly not a one-to-one. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't found any, like, splatter-punky lines that that I won't cross yet. But again, like, I don't really write that way. 
that's not really the subgenre that interests me as a writer. And again, like I haven't really read anything that's super, super extreme. I'm on a Nick Cutter kick right now, and he writes some pretty viscerally disgusting things. <laughs> but it's not gratuitous, you know, it doesn't seem mm. splatter punky. It just seems yeah. kind of stomach turning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I read The Troop and I recently just finished The Deep. Great horror novels. Highly recommended. I want to read his next one, Little Heaven. That's on my TBR list. But, you know, again, yeah, not Splatterpunk. So. Yeah. yeah. I need to check some of his stuff out. I love him. His descriptions are some of the best I've ever read. Mm. I just, yeah. It's fascinating and disgusting. And I love it. <laughs> Perfect combination. Perfect combination. Well, so you mentioned your experience with filmmaking. You're a screenwriter, correct? Yes. So what was it like? Like, how did you transition from the systematic, succinct craft of screenwriting to the more stream of consciousness style of novel writing? Hmm. Well, I have been writing short stories since I could pick up a pencil. I was writing my own little short stories. So I did the reverse, actually. I had to go from creating whatever world I wanted mm-hmm. to having to learn a different format of storytelling, play by different rules. You're writing for budget. You know, budget plays so much into what you are writing if you are writing a screenplay. Mm. Can we have more than three locations? Can I write X number of actors or is that going to be too expensive? You know, there's so many boxes that you have to fit inside when you're writing a screenplay. Mm. So then I had to fit inside of those boxes. And so then when I go back to writing novels, it's like, oh, I can breathe. He's been set free. <laughs> it's, it's all, I can dream up and I can write whatever I want. And it's just me. Like, of course, down the line, I'm going to have collaborators and people help out. But for this stage of the game, it is just me. And as far as my imagination wants to take a certain situation, mm-hmm. there's no parameters. So I like going back to writing novels. Well, so from screenwriter, producer, director, is that the correct order of your professional journey? And can you elaborate on some of those roles? Yeah, I definitely see myself as a writer first and foremost. Producer, last. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't really enjoy producing. I'm not really great at it. I'm good at networking and getting people to like me, but Mm -hmm. producing is such a pain in the ass. (laughs) It's not for me. No, it's not a very creative job. And so writing and directing, that's where I get to like flex those creative muscles. Yeah. And I haven't directed anything in, oh my gosh, it's been over a decade since I've directed. Mm -hmm. And I've really kind of found that I think writing is my lane. That is the lane that I feel the most comfortable in and that I feel like I'm the best in. So screenwriting as well. Screenwriting. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually I would like to maybe direct something that I've written 
again, but it'll have to be the right circumstances and budget again. <laughs> <laughs> money. Everything's money. Well, you were one of the writers on a film called Trim Season, correct? Yes. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Trim Season, I was working with some producers in Hollywood. And I've been collaborating with them on a few projects that led to some other projects and branched out and blah, blah, blah. And then this project came to me and Shawnee DeMott, he's the producer. He was like, okay, so we have an idea. We want you to write the screenplay and also like flesh out the story, do all, you know, whatever. So he's like, what if we have like a group of girls who go up to a farm in Humboldt County to trim for a couple of weeks. What's scary? Like any number of scenarios that could happen. And I mean, you know, that's a scary thing already in and of itself. I was doing a lot of research on the grow farms, you know, before weed became legal. And I mean, even now, like there's some sketchy, sketchy stuff that happens up in those mountains, up in Humboldt, <laughs> those grow operations. And it's not just like the marijuana farmers. There's like, meth cookers and a bunch of mm. other dangers that happen up there. So, you know, you could really write anything, any kind of horror. You could make it a slasher. You could make it a whatever. None of that stuff really interested me. And so Shawnee and I went back and forth like, oh, okay, what is the hook? What is the hook of this horror story with these girls going up and trimming? And then he said, well, what if the farm is owned by a witch? Mm. Does that do anything for you? <laughs> Does that spark anything? And um, pretty immediately, I was like, okay, yes, because it's easy for me to do supernatural. I think that that is supernatural is my chosen genre of horror. And so I was like, yes, okay, I can work with this. I can figure out some cool angle with this plot. So yeah, I developed these characters and I figured out a cool witch played by Jane Badler, who's remarkable. And yeah, she's also <laughs> what the witch is after in Trim Season um, is there's some similarities between that and Firebug. We'll just leave it. Oh, at that. OK, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine a few different scenarios. There's some shared DNA. There's some shared DNA there for sure. But uh, yeah, I'm really happy. I still haven't seen the film yet, believe it or not. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's traveling the festival circuit right now. Um, I think it just played in Miami. It just played in London. And there's no solid distribution plan yet. The strikes have thrown a little bit of a delay in stuff coming out. Mm -hmm. But hopefully it'll come out soon and a wider audience will be able to see it. But yeah, it's gotten really good reviews so far and the festivals that it's played at. So awesome. I'm hoping that it's uh, well received, largely. Well, you talked about earlier with regard to film production that you're great at networking. So, mm -hmm. how would you describe your personality in terms of introversion and extroversion, especially considering the uh, contrasting natures of filmmaking as a social endeavor and writing as a solitary activity? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've always felt like I am an extroverted introvert. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> um, a uh, introvert capable of being extrovert. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I'm good in social situations. I'm really good at reading a room. I'm good at those social things, but when I need to like recharge my batteries, mm-hmm. when I feel the most comfortable, it's when I'm at home mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, writing my own stuff or not any sort of center of attention, you know. But, you know, that being said, I'm also a performer. I perform on stage in front of hundreds of people. And I love that. And that also kind of feeds me. I like to perform for people, but that's not where I feel charged. You know, it's like my introvert side is I go introverty when I need to recharge my batteries. Do you feel like the fact that an introvert kind of gets drained by being around people, not like in a bad sense, even if the people are interesting and engaging, it's just like this natural way Mm -hmm. that they're built where they feel drained. Do you feel that that only happens when the interaction is unscripted? Like you're talking about performing and you kind of get a charge out of that because that's scripted interaction and kind Mm -hmm. of a one-way interaction. Do you feel like that doesn't pull from you the same way that you would if you just sat down and had an off-the-cuff conversation with somebody? Yeah, maybe because you're giving away your energy in a different way. Mm-hmm. So when I'm performing something that's been scripted, I'm giving to my scene partners, I'm giving to the audience. And you know, that is like giving of my energy versus when you're talking to somebody or you're in a room, there's more of a organic interplay mm-hmm. that takes a different kind of energy. And that's a lot of bandwidth. It takes more from me than the performance. Like watching a movie as opposed to playing a video game. Sure, sure. Watching a movie is, you know, more passive and playing a video game, you're more active. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good uh, comparison. Well, when you were writing the book, did you have a daily writing routine or any specific rituals or habits? Yeah. I wrote the first half of Firebug when I was living in Arizona, and that was just for like a stint. And then I finished it in Montana. Mm -hmm. But my routine usually was I would go work my day job, and then I would come home in the afternoon or, you know, early evening, and I would write for two or three hours. Then I would have, you know, I would have a glass of wine or a little scotch to lube up the imagination. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes I would have like a totem next to me that would symbolize what I was writing. When I wrote my first novel that's unpublished, I had a little compass. Mm -hmm. And that was my little totem that I would have. And for Firebug, it really was the drink. (laughs) Because (laughs) the underlying theme is drinking and addiction and whatever. Mm -hmm. So sort of my totem for Firebug was the drink. Yeah. So as far as like rituals, that was it. Okay. Well, what is the life of David Blair like outside of writing, performing cabaret, did you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Filmmaking. <laughs> oh. What uh, what else you got that, in the uh all of those things take up so much of my time. I don't know who <laughs> I don't know who I am outside of all of that. <laughs> who am I? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I live in Whitefish, Montana. It's a beautiful, beautiful town. And I enjoy going to the movies. I have a wonderful partner named Jake, who is also a writer, a brilliant writer. Mm. Does he He's write horror? He loves horror. So Jake is a walking encyclopedia of horror. He knows more about horror than anybody I've ever known in my entire life. And he has written a couple horror plays. He's a playwright. Mm. Very, very good. Very good. And he's currently writing a, it's not a memoir. I mean, it is a memoir, I guess, of his time hiking the Appalachian Trail. And, you know, all of the social politics of being a queer person hiking the Appalachian Trail. And that's what he's currently working on. He's editing it right now. So hopefully we'll be seeing that being published in the next year or so. Who knows? But yeah, so we go to the movies a lot. We watch a lot of horror. We love horror, obviously. I have a very strong, tight friend group here. And, you know, we hang out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I'm finding the older I get, the slightly less like social I am. I don't like to like go out. Like, let's go mm-hmm. downtown. Yeah, that doesn't really hold much interest for me anymore. Same, but I used to. <laughs> yeah, I used to. I used to like to go to the bars and stuff. But yeah, I have a wonderful cat named Monica, and she's just the light of our lives. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I guess other than like all of the writing career stuff. I mean, honestly, that's a huge chunk of my life. Yeah. But yeah, I enjoy coffee. Mm. <laughs> I like to eat out at restaurants. Yes. <laughs> I, have, I have an appreciation <laughs> for food. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, David, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Vincent, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Absolutely. Well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Um, sure. Yeah. Just like keep a lookout for trim season. I have a film also on Hulu that I am an uncredited co-writer on, but I am a co-producer. It's called The Free Fall. Okay. It is a psychological thriller with a lot of horror elements. Hmm. And it's on Hulu. Yeah. Trim season should be coming out soon. And for people who are fans of Firebug and looking forward to my next novel, it is in the works. So, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take me. This one (laughs) is going to be bigger in length and in scope. Uh And it is coming. My follow-up novel is on its way. Nice. We are all waiting with bated breath. Oh, thanks. All right, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And David, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer and director whose works of possession horror redefine the boundaries of the genre. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Close, so I could.